0: before the existence of written records human systematized combat from prehistory and into the modern day martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war or to compete or to preserve a tradition or to touch personal greatness these codified methods push us to ask questions to explore to express to test and to tell stories This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes.
1: This episode of the Jamie Club podcast picks up the continuing story of boxing legend Jersey Joe Walcott. If you didn't catch the earlier parts, please check out the Christmas trilogy, Coal for Jersey Joe. Otherwise, let's head back down memory lane for the show you voted for, and I'm proud to present. Cake Walker, part one, Grotesque Dancer in the Garden. 5th of December 1947, and world heavyweight challenger Arnold Cream, fighting under his alias of Jersey Joe Walcott, has arrived at his destination. With one smooth movement, he steps through the middle rope, faces his corner and loosens one of his boulder-like shoulders. These sharply defined yet disproportionately large attributes will be used like a separate pair of limbs to block, deflect, feint and beguile his opponent. They need to be on form tonight more than they have ever been and to work in conjunction with those comparatively thin legs which look like they belong in an entirely different weight division. Just as the thick shoulders are deceptive in their extraordinary dexterity, so do these legs veil their own secret powers. They're dancers' legs, for sure, but don't let that fool you into thinking they can't pack force behind the knockout punches this fighter has cultivated on his arduous journey to this moment at this arena. A product of his time, Jersey Joe has lived in poverty most of his life and fought his way up from the bottom, having been knocked down many times. It's taken the vision and belief of Felix Spokikio to steer him straight. Likewise, after eight years and ten months since John Henry Lewis's one-round defeat, Joe Lewis's promoters have been convinced to give another African-American a chance to claim the greatest prize in the boxing world, the heavyweight title. Not that many people hold out much hope for this latest prospect. One particular columnist sums up the general feeling regarding Jersey Joe Walcott. Walcott has no right whatsoever to be in the same ring with Lewis. He's probably 40 years old, has six children, and can't fight a lick. End quote. Jersey Joe is at Madison Square Garden for the fourth time in his career. It's the third venue to bear this title and won't be the last. The garden, as it's sometimes colloquially known, is already synonymous with show business and boxing. Over half a century ago, the second Madison Square Garden was built in 1890, financed by a syndicate of six businessmen, including the circus man Phineas T. Barnum. Barnum had leased the original Madison Square Garden on 26th Street, Madison Avenue, Manhattan in 1879 to put on his circuses. Being an outdoor arena, performances suffered due to New York's wet and snowy winters and were closed after 11 years. Reaching 32 storeys, Madison Square Garden 2 became New York's second tourist building of the time. On the seventeenth of February 1892, this second garden hosted the Grand Cakewalk. Much like the boxing contest that would follow, it would court a mixture of widespread celebration and controversy across New York society. Many observers of Jersey Joe Walcott would note that his unique style in the boxing ring echoed this institution to the extent that his footwork would often be dubbed cakewalking. The cakewalk emerged in pre-Civil War plantations across the southern United States. Florida is often cited as the place of its actual origin. Slaves formed processions of dancers, partnered man to woman, who moved with intended comic formality. The dancers wore the handed-down evening wear of their owners, twirled canes, thrust their chins forward, puffed out their chests and trotted to the amusement of onlookers. These onlookers were the plantation owners who awarded the best dancers a cake. The most popular theory for the dance's creation is that it evolved from the ring shout, a transcendent religious dance the slaves brought over from Africa, involving dancers moving in a circle, rhythmically stomping and shuffling feet whilst clapping and shouting. The African-American performer, actor and writer Tom Fletcher said his grandparents told him the dancers' roots were in a balancing contest held on plantations where the prize was awarded to the dancers who could walk a winding chalk line while spilling the least amount of water from the pails balanced on their heads. Others have argued that similar dances to the cakewalk were already being practised back in Africa, with examples being observed in the continents west, in Nigeria and Ghana, as well as its southernmost region in South Africa. Still, as far back as 1912, Ethel L. Erlin stated the cakewalk came from Florida's Seminole people. Erlin believed it began as a war dance that transferred from the Native Americans to the immigrant African population. Dances and combat conflate and overlap throughout history whether or not the cakewalk began as a war dance there's a strong argument the performances were a subtle protest made against supercilious white society the mock formality of the walkers provided a comment on the stiff looking mannered dances many slaves would have witnessed at the formal events held by the plantation owners with their friends families and business associates whether or not the white plantation community understood this satire is not entirely clear by the time it had reached the attention of New York High Society via the minstrelsy, many were repulsed by what they saw now as black faces, both whites and African-Americans who corked their skin, ridiculing an old plantation tradition. It had become known as a grotesque dance. The apparent lack of awareness demonstrated by the overtly racist minstrel shows did not escape the notice of the celebrated writer Amiri Baraka in his non-fiction work blues people, Negro music in white America. At times, praised for his wide range of material that have been described as defining texts of African-American culture and other times condemned for taking undeniably provocative stances, Baraka, born Everett Leroy Jones in New Jersey, seems well-placed to comment on the Cakewalk's complex history and its subsequent controversy. Quote... If the cakewalk is a Negro dance caricaturing certain white customs, what is that dance when, say, a white theatre company attempts to satirise it as a Negro dance? I find the idea of white minstrels in blackface satirising a dance, satirising a dance, satirising themselves, a remarkable kind of irony, which I suppose is the whole point of minstrel shows, end quote. In 1920, Madison Square Garden 2 played host to the man who helped make professional boxing a colossal attraction for that decade and until the present time. The Manassa Mauler, Jack Dempsey, made just one appearance there when he knocked out Bill Brennan on the 14th of December in round 12 to retain his world heavyweight title for the second time. Dempsey's rapidly growing popularity with the general public demanded the sport be legitimised and his fame would only grow from this point onwards, even eclipsing the iconic baseball player Babe Ruth in the 1920s. New laws and rival governing bodies made it much easier for the sport to become a professional business. Ever-increasing ticket sales made it an especially big industry, so big that in January 1925, when the second building was demolished, Boxing promoter Tex Rickard footed the entire $4.75 million bill to build a third Madison Square Garden on 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th Streets. This building was in stark contrast to the ornate theatricality of its 19th century predecessor. Scottish architect Thomas W. Lamb designed a physical tribute to modernist functionality. Only a decorative marquee above the main entrance hinted To the Garden's show business past. Although, since its grand opening, Rickford used the venue to host ice hockey games and was even inspired to create his own team, the New York Rangers, as well as basketball games, and continue to host Barnum's Circus Legacy, this is a purpose-built boxing venue that can hold 18,496 spectators for this particular sport. Modernist functionality is a term that can be applied to the world heavyweight boxing champion Joe Lewis. He makes his entrance to a roar of applause, his head mainly hidden by a white towel. He trots a tight circle in his customary fashion before getting down to business. Lewis is used to the adulation. His place in history is assured, having both fought for and defended his world heavyweight title more than any other boxer before him. He still holds the unbroken record of most consecutive title defences in boxing history regardless of the division. Joe Lewis knocked out all five of the lineal world heavyweight champions that followed Gene Tunney's reign. His list of knockout victims included some of the largest, heaviest men to compete in the heavyweight division up to that point. Giants like world champions Primo Carnera and Max Bear who had killed opponents in the ring. Dangerous contenders like the serial rule-breaking two-ton Tony Gilento and the freakishly strong Abe the Ape Simon. Big Joe loose from Alabama. He don't play bridge, but he sure can slam. He knocks him down, he knocks him round. Turns
0: round and trucks on down.
1: Trained to mechanical perfection by Jack Chappie Blackburn, Joe Lewis has effectively processed the heavyweight division of his time with ruthless efficiency. Smile, frown, and in this respect, those... Jersey Joe Walcott is his polar opposite. His performance, although ahead of its time, might be seen as a callback to the previous gardens of Razzmatazz. Outboxers and boxer punchers have exhibited the noble art of self-defence in its purest form, their best exponents are great at hitting without getting hit. However, at their extreme end, Tommy Lothran and Joey Maxim have bored audiences with their evasive style. It takes the great dancers to entertain. The likes of Sugar Ray Leonard, Vassal Lemonchenko, and even the self-proclaimed greatest and sport illustrateds and BBC sportsman of the 20th century, Muhammad Ali, will radiate from the glow of Willie Pep and Sugar Ray Robinson's magical footwork. Yet even amongst these creative and imaginative hoofers, these unique manipulators of rhythm, Jersey Joe Walcott is an enigmatic master. The term cakewalk has come to mean something that is effortless. We get the phrase piece of cake from the same place. Some have suggested the term comes from the simple carnival game of the same name that involved participants walking on numbered squares to music. However, despite the clear physical demands of the actual dance, the point of being able to cakewalk is to be able to move and flow with ease. After all, it is taking a dig at the discipline of dance, and as the wisdom goes, the best clowns are those who can parody what they can do well. Svane, Jersey Joe, fought and used the ring with seemingly so little effort, it looked as if he was sending up the entire art of boxing. Though he hasn't said as much in public, Joe Lewis is finding it hard not to look at his heavyweight reign through world-weary eyes. He's been at the top for a long time, longer than any other champion in history. Years later, he will admit he can relate to Alexander the Great's alleged weeping when there was no more land to conquer. Thoughts of retirement have been on his mind. Outside of boxing, Joe enjoys the high life and his position of influence that has inspired so many. He's passionate about golf and baseball. His private life, at the moment at least, seems healthy. After divorcing Marva Trotter, the mother of his two children, Jacqueline and Joe Lewis Jr., in 1945, the couple have remarried a year later, and he enjoys being a father. There are other signs too. He's in a changing world. Jack Johnson, the first African-American to win the World Heavyweight Championship and regular rival of Lewis in the media due to a lengthy feud with Chappie Blackburn, is dead killed in a car accident on the way to watch one of Lewis's fights in 1946. Chappie is dead too now, a sudden heart attack, claiming him not long after Lewis began his stint in the army. Lewis's most powerful promoter, Uncle Mike Jacobs, has retired after suffering a stroke. As much as he is loved in the ring, only the most demanding of fans would begrudge Joe Lewis the opportunity to hang up his gloves only the mounting money pressures that will only get worse are motivating him to put the title on the line. Thanks to his generosity and poor business investments, he is heavily in debt. The IRS say he owes a fortune in taxes for the purses he donated to the war effort. Like his bouts with Billy Conn, he's had to cut weight to make the fight seem fair against yet another individual who has spent a good deal of his career in the light heavyweight ranks. In Lewis's autobiography, he will mark this moment in training as the time he lost the joy in fight preparation. Despite what Joe Lewis tells the press at the time, he will later confess that he remembers Jersey Joe Walcott from the time Chappie employed him as a sparring partner in 1936. As we have heard, the story of their sparring matches varies depending on whom you ask. Jersey Joe describes this happening the first time they sparred. Quote, I crossed the right to Lewis's head that made his eyes narrow. I stepped around and stabbed him with jabs. I kept in motion from side to side. The harder he tried, the worse he looked. He dubbed his shots badly. As he lunged and missed with one big angry left hook, I came back with a right to the face. It wasn't a hard punch and could have hurt, but it was perfectly placed and enough to knock him off balance. He stumbled awkwardly across the ring. The rope saved him from falling face first and landed on both knees. As we've heard previously, Jersey Joe claims that this cost him his job at the camp. By contrast, Lewis will have this to say about Walcott in his autobiography. Quote, I knew all about him and knew he was a damn good fighter and I remembered him well. He had been one of my sparring partners when I was preparing for the Schmeling fight in 1936. Jersey Joe looked good with me when we had our first workout back then. Second workout? I must have hurt him some. Next thing I knew, he cut out of the camp and never came back. And now here he is, fighting for my title. One thing we had in common is that we both had fought Alator and Abe Simon. Only thing, though, he had been knocked out by both of them. End quote. Newspaper photos exist of Lewis knocking Walcott down during this sparring session, and some boxing historians insist that Walcott's accounts are correct. Walcott described these pictures as... Movie photographs and called them baloney. Contradicting his later recount, Lewis told reporters at the time he couldn't even recall the sparring session. Walcock told them he doubted the Brown bomber would ever forget that day. Joe Lewis was the 20 to 1 favorite. Jack Dempsey stated, Walcott is not a real contender. There are no real contenders left. The field is wide open. End quote. Even to this day, Jersey Joe's spotty early record is used as a case against his boxing greatness. Context is everything. Whereas Joe Lewis had assailed a mountain of opposition, earning and maintaining his place in history, his career had been carefully managed. By contrast, Walcott had taken fights to feed his desperate family at very short notice, with little to no training and often on an empty stomach. Despite both men being the same age of 33... There was wild speculation that Jersey Joe was much older. The most conservative sports writers didn't think he was younger than 38. Many thought he was around 40. Jack Dempsey's old manager Jack Doc Kearns quipped, Anything under 50 could be correct. Kearns might have been still spoiling from the decision that saw his man Joey Maxim lose his rubber match to Jersey Joe in the challenger's last fight. Unlike many fighters, Jersey Joe had been deprived of an amateur career and had been boxing illegally since the age of 15. Looking at the dates of the fights and his record, an assumption was made he had been much older at the start of his career. This seemed to be supported by the residents of his hometown, possibly confusing Jersey Joe with his older brother by five years, whose real name was Joe Cream, and had also boxed for a while. The typically untidy path of history, whereby Jersey Joe may have even fought under his brother's full name, Joe Arnold Cream, in an early bout, didn't improve matters. Add into the mix the fact that the impoverished Jersey Joe had been born at home and no birth certificate had been issued at the time, and one can imagine the confusion. A later certificate had been issued and substantiated by the IRS that should have put the matter to rest. It didn't, and the stigma remained. Jersey Joe was dubbed Pappy in the press and was regularly referred to as Ageing, Elderly, and even Ancient. Lewis will later say the good life distracted him in the build-up to the fight. Suddenly, November arrived and he was back into training, having been over a year since he last defended the title with a one-round knockout of Tammy Mariello. Nevertheless, contemporary reports have his training camp at Pompton Lakes, New Jersey, telling the press that Lewis was in better shape than when he last fought Billy Conn. After breaking camp, they reported the champion had sparred over 85 rounds and run over 300 miles. Adding to his joyless reminiscence of the time... Lewis said he didn't eat any heavy meals and drank little in order to come in at a good weight. He told reporters he wasn't taking the fight lightly. He believed Jersey Joe to be a hard puncher and a serious threat. Elsewhere at the closed down Grenlock Amusement Park in the same city, there had been little question of the challenger's seriousness in his secluded training camp. Although his workouts were made public, Jersey Joe gave no interviews. Team Walcott wanted to keep their man focused and away from any confusing advice that might seep into conversations from outside sources. Joe Lewis was an elite boxing machine and he was going to take a remarkable plan to dismantle him. Nick Florio, his brother Dan and co-trainer Joey Allen believed they had that strategy. Every trick, every sophisticated feint and cadence-switching footwork manoeuvre would be brought into play. Jersey Joe had the knockout power, but experience had shown them that a slugging match was not the way to go with Joe Lewis. Lewis struggled with what he called runners. Pasta and Con had bothered him. However, Jersey Joe was going to show him an entirely different level of footwork. In order to take Joe Lewis the distance, Jersey Joe Walcock had to be fit and in perfect physical and mental condition. He had the hardest dance of his life ahead of him. You never gonna make it. You're not good enough. There's a million other people with the same stuff. You really think you're different and you must be. The day usually began at first light where Woolcock put in 5 to 8 miles wearing heavy-soled labor boots and often running through mud. According to James Curl's biography, Jersey Joe followed up his run with two rounds shadow boxing, two rounds on the speed bag, 10 minutes skipping and two rounds on the heavy bag. His solo training was complete with a calisthenics routine. His sparring partners consisted of three professionals, Leroy Haynes, Austin Johnson and Eddie Wilson. They brought a mixture of experience and toughness to the ring. A personal chef managed the food, ensuring Jersey Joe got plenty of protein. Demonstrating the harmonious balance of intensive hard graft training and the need to relax, Jersey Joe regularly volunteered to cook for everyone. He also spent time with his visiting brothers and sisters, played cards and listened to the radio. Dan Florio told the press that his man was, quote, in wonderful shape. He's better now than when he whipped Bivens in Cleveland a couple of years ago and nobody gave him a chance then either, End quote. After eight weeks, Jersey Joe Walcott was ready to fulfil his mother's prediction that he could be world champion. It was time to cakewalk. The bell rings and both men move into the centre of the ring. Lewis, wearing purple trunks, stands in his normal offline stance with his right hand slightly higher than his left. There is little he hasn't seen. Different fighters have brought a range of tactics to the ring, from jumping in early like Tammy Moriello and Buddy Bear to collected circling like Billy Conn and his fight with Bob Pastor. Jersey Joe, wearing white trunks with a black contrast stripe, circles to the right and covers himself from Lewis's infamous power hand with regular jabbing. The champion snaps back with his own precision jabs, but Walcott's jerky shoulder feints and low-guard baiting is already agitating him. Lewis presses forward and the exchanges begin early. Lewis has said he wants to get this fight over with early. He's done this plenty of times, as Max Baer once quipped after Lewis put him away in round four in their 1935 encounter... I define fear as standing across the ring from Joe Lewis and knowing he wants to go home early. Two jabs and his terrifying straight right just miss Jersey Joe's jaw. Walcott counters and begins to dance. He's all set to mesmerise and bedazzle as planned but he didn't account for Lewis's force. The champion pursues him around the ring and the plan appears to be working too well. Jersey Joe's dancing display, his feints and baits, annoy his opponent, but can the challenger handle the storm coming his way? Again, two jabs and the straight right come through, this time sending Jersey Joe into a corner. It's the worst place anyone can imagine when fighting against Joe Lewis, a man trained to perfection to cut off the ring and pin down his opponents. Walcock is trapped. With the champion bearing down on him, all the dreams, all the brave assertions and all the faith that invested him from his mother to his manager to the 30 or so family members and friends who will be huddled around the brand new television set in New Jersey are set to be smashed to oblivion. Where was the dancing now? Ancient Jersey Joe. The elderly No-Hoper. Walcott is not a real contender. Anything under 50 could be correct. It all happens in a split second. Lewis swarms over Jersey Joe with lefts and rights. Walcott does not cover up. He's taken punishment before. He's tasted the canvas and many times the bitterness of defeat, followed by the look of disappointment in the supporter's eyes. Often they are the eyes in the changing room mirror. No more demonstrating amazing upper body mobility and dexterity in the corner. Jersey Joe slips Lewis's two jabs and shoulder rolls a big right and left. Lewis's right misses and Walcott blocks his short left before retaliating with a right-left-right combination of hooks. The final right, backed up by the force of his gigantic shoulder, catches the champion on the cheek. Joe Lewis is down on the seat of his trunks and the audience rises in surprise. It looks like Jersey Joe is the real deal. Lewis is less impressed. He gets up at two. The knockdown hasn't so much as hurt him as added to his annoyance. Once on his feet, he throws another right that just kisses Jersey Joe's jaw. Lewis is back in his hot pursuit of the grotesque dancer. I lost my head then, he will later confess. I tried to take him out with lefts and rights, but Walcott ran away. This isn't exactly how it happened in round one. After nearly connecting with the right, Jersey Joe responds with his own right. He then returns to the familiar dynamic of circling. However, it doesn't mean he won't try to drop a few bombs soon. The mad is how Lewis throws his own as well and in uncharacteristic eagerness will slip. Rising to his feet for a second time, Jersey Joe closes in on him and for a rare instant has him against the ropes. Showing his skill as a boxer, Lewis is out of trouble quickly. The bell was sound as the two engage in a vicious trade of heavy shots round two and jersey joe needs to ride lewis's desire to put him away quickly it's time to get back on the game plan and outdance the brown bomber jersey joe seems to have got the measure of his opponent now i was still as mad as a son of a bitch lewis later declares i kept sticking jabs in his face and trying to bang rights to his body but he just danced away from me predictably the champion stalks walcott and sets up his straight right again Jersey Joe slips the punch. Lewis presses him into the ropes but Walcott ties him up and with clinical precision posts off him and out of range. He then lets fly with a flicker jab camouflaging two hard rights. The second straight catches Lewis on the chin and buckles his legs. (coughs) He will leave the round bearing the redness from these punches and a look of frustration across his face. Round three sees Jersey Joe hit his stride in earnest. The fight stays mainly at long range. Lewis, although still angered, is an intelligent fighter. Wolcott's eccentric style is clearly frustrating him and also entertaining the audience, but he isn't going to wear himself out by chasing. Lewis has more than a terrible straight right or cross in his arsenal. When needed, the champion can be as much a stealth bomber as he is an atomic career ender. His check hook is arguably as notorious as his straight right, but his jab has been honed through his career into a precision weapon. At long range, he's bayoneted Josie Joe several times with sneaky shots. However, the challenger has his own check hook and lands it in response to one of these attacks before, as Lewis often used to say, got on his bicycle. It was largely a stick-and-move battle with both men scoring with their jabs and Walcock backpedalling in his confusing style. However, ahead of the bell, Jersey Joe will again score with a right that stuns Lewis before narrowly missing with another. The champion sits on his stool, determined to take this fight back into his domain. He waves to a friend in the audience, perhaps reassuring them that he's got matters in hand. Lewis zeroes in on Jersey Joe. He's had luck in the previous round with the jabs. Time to put some stiffness behind them and fires two at his target, Walcott's chin. Whilst not quite a power jab, his second punch finds its mark (coughs) and it's enough for the Cape Walker to backpedal and sidestep away. That's it. Run away. Lewis is back in control. He has only to hunt down his quarry and finish the job properly. He pursues Jersey Joe with jabs determined to pin him down. Only a matter of time now. Then Jersey Joe fires a rapid double jab, drops his hands as if mocking his opponent and walks off. Without warning, he turns on his heel and lands another jab. Lewis takes the bait and continues to press forward. Walcock turns and takes another two steps back. Through the coaching and teaching of Chappie Blackburn, Joe Lewis is comparable to a computer. He elevates learning from one's mistakes to an art form. For Lewis, it's not just about exploiting an opponent's weaknesses. Rather, it is about recalibrating in order to deal with their strengths. However, tonight, Jersey Joe Walcock is calculating his enemy. He is timing Lewis's advances whilst disrupting the champion's rhythm. Lewis has to reset each time before he can re-advance. It's the part of the dance Jersey Joe calls the walkaway. One more time, Walcock drops his hands and takes a few steps backwards. His hands swing as if to exaggerate the strolling nature of his footwork, the comical expression of the cakewalk. Lewis, now mesmerised by the trap, resets and follows. Jersey Joe times his straight right to perfection and sends the brown bomber down hard. The audience are on their feet again, but this time the champion isn't so fast to continue. Letting his experience and a cooler head prevail, he takes an 8 count on the knee. Lewis will later claim it was a 7 count, but will also remember thinking, God damn, am I really a 20 to 1 favourite? Once up, he's still dazed and Jersey Joe is keen to finish the job. Lewis just misses getting caught again by a big right hand. It is his turn to take the outboxer position. He fends off the challenger with the time-honoured tactics of jabbing and clinching. However, Jersey Joe will not be dissuaded. My head was ringing, Lewis will later say. I fell into a clinch to clear it up. Walcott shook me loose and started beating the shit out of me. Another right crashes into the side of the champion's head. Lewis ties up his opponent again only to be pushed away and set up for a one-two combination that smashes into his face. The champion's legs begin to go and he holds on. With an ecstatic crowd and his corner ringing his ears, Wolcott again posts off Lewis and sets up the right. The champion's instincts save him and he ducks the blow. Jersey Joe maintains the attack, but the champion weathers it to the round's conclusion. According to Joe Lewis, the next four rounds would consist of him pressing a back Jersey Joe. The footage reveals Lewis behaving in an uncharacteristically cagey manner at the beginning of round five. Again, this could be a callback to Chappie's advice on drawing an opponent. After all, this is what appears to be Walcott's game. Why not force him onto the front foot? The crowd responded in awe, but Jersey Joe wasn't to be persuaded. He wasn't going to behave like Billy Conn, where like a pugilistic Icarus, the fleet-footed outboxer's dreams of certain victory were burnt to a crisp when he flew too close to this particular star. After Jersey Joe continued circling and refused to engage, Lewis went back to chasing. It was time to set up the walkaway again. But Walcott had underestimated one of Joe Lewis's greatest attributes, one he would share with only a very select few legendary fighters, his ability to learn from his mistakes. He gave Jersey Joe two jabs to the face for his trouble. But there was more to Walcott than this mesmerising display of quirky dancing and timing traps. He shot back with a left hook to Lewis's chin and switched his stance. Jersey Joe, again demonstrating skills that would only be recognised until years to come, could comfortably change stances. He was a switch hitter. He now fights as a southpaw. The two boxers exchange jabs and Lewis scores with a left hook. Walcott counterpunches with a right to the body. He has unwittingly tapped into another area the champion handles well. As Walcott had previously demonstrated on Joey Maxim, going to the body was a decent strategy for slowing down runners. Lewis resolves to use his jab and go downstairs whenever possible. Jersey Joe backs out of the close-range exchange, switching to a back-and-forth rally of jabs as the bell sounds. A noticeable swelling begins to surface above the champion's left eye. In round six, Lewis again begins on the back foot and attempts to lure Walcott into the trenches. Jersey Joe shows his contempt for the ploy and fainting with his shoulders he sends off a jab at a safe distance Lewis consents to the fencing and returns his own jab Jersey Joe probes his apparently wounded enemy's defences with caution before sending over a right that Lewis catches in his open glove Walcott follows this with a left downstairs only to receive two stiff jabs to the head in return time to move out Walcott starts another walk away but Lewis is on him He misses with a left and right, but maintains the momentum with a series of lefts to the head and body, switching jabs to a stinging hook to the ribs. Walcott retaliates with a right-uppercut-left hook combination. The former catches Lewis's shoulder, and the latter hits him in the cheek. He then follows this up with left and right body hooks, but Lewis fights back with a hard jab to the chin. He's getting into the champions' territory now. They're in the centre of the ring exchanging punches. Both land hard rights to the jaw just prior to the round ending. Round seven sees Jersey Joe taking the initiative. This doesn't mean going after Lewis, but rather starting the dance early. He uses lateral movement that confuses the champion, who's still trying to pin him down. Lewis's pursuit was successful a few times as he scored early with jabs, but Walcott gave back plenty of his own. The dance was on and Lewis was missing again. Jersey Joe is really hitting into his stride now, he bobs his head away from Lewis's increasingly lacklustre-looking assaults whilst landing his own jabs, hooks and big right hands. Eventually, the fight ends in a slugfest reminiscent of the previous round's finish, an area Walcock is best advised to avoid, but to most onlookers, it appears this wily upstart challenger is winning these exchanges. Lewis may recount that Walcock was still avoiding him at this point, but he certainly feels the three rights at the beginning of round eight. His face is red from the impact and his swollen left eye doesn't look pretty. Jersey Joe homes in on it with jabs before moving away. This is Jersey Joe's show. His stutter steps, shuffles and poses bring a new level of showboating not seen since the days of Max Baer. The difference is the man cakewalking boxing is not clowning around. His bizarre pastiche of outboxing are deceptive setups allowing Walcock to interrupt his opponent's flow, setting up angles of attack and hitting on the half beat. Writing for Bad Left Hook, James Foley will say, quote, The footwork looks choreographed. The constant upper body movement from the shoulders to the head befuddles Lewis and stifles his attack on all fronts, end quote. Maintaining his own style, the champion follows using his own jabs as a pathfinder. Using the patient footwork Chappie has drilled into him since his earliest days, Lewis catches the dancing menace and gets in with those all-important stamina-sapping shots to the body, punctuating them with a hard right to the jaw. Jersey Joe counters with a right to Lewis's body and then rides a retaliatory sharp jab to the face before firing back his own. They're back in the trenches, but perhaps the brown bomber is down on his firepower. No more running, no more dancing. Walcott digs in with heavy punches as the bell rings. I may not be able to beat nobody else, but I can beat Joe Lewis. Those words Jersey Joe had supposedly told friends when he returned from his ill-fated time at Lewis's training camp 12 years ago might have their vindication now. James Foley describes what followed. Quote, After a few rounds of Lewis mounting little pressure, Walcott seems to go for it in the ninth, standing and trading with a monster puncher, treading that same treacherous road old Billy Conn waltzed down six years prior. Lewis finally has a few good moments in these toe-to-toe exchanges, but Walcott is getting off too. The round had begun with a confident Jersey Joe willing to continue where he left off. He slips Lewis's jab to land a good right cross. It's a short-lived victory and Jersey Joe is now deep within enemy territory. The left hook, the Brown Bomber's other great weapon, does its job and opens a cut on Walcott's face. Seeing the damage done, Joe Lewis recounts, I thought I had him in the ninth. I jabbed him into position for a right cross that landed just a bit too high. As he fell against the ropes, I poured lefts and rights through his body and his head, but he took them all and fought back. The trade-off is vicious. Jersey Joe's vengeful right hurts Lewis, but Lewis's 1-2 wobbles the challenger. Amongst his many traits, Joe Lewis is a highly respected finisher. Up to this point, 48 of his 56 victories have ended in a stoppage, often an outright knockout. If he says he thought he had Jersey Joe, there is a lot of substance in that belief. Walcock's dance looks like it might be over.
2: You're never gonna make it you're not good enough. There's a million other people with the same stuff. you really think you're different and you must be kidding think you're gonna hit it but you just don't get it it's impossible.
1: The great dancers from flamenco to hip-hop to jazz to ballet are masters of deception. They mask their pain with uplifting smiles and joyous gesticulations. Their most breathtaking moves are those that defy our expectations of what a human body is capable of achieving and they do it all to patterns we cannot see. And so it is that Jersey Joe's descent becomes an abrupt exit from the ropes, and like a wink to those who doubted him, he covers it with a powerful right that catches Lewis flush in the face. The argument against the ropes is over, and Walcock has left it with a loud drop of the mic. Reminiscing in his autobiography, Lewis will later say, quote, I knew my chance for a knockout was over, end quote. A year after the fight, Jersey Joe will recount his memories of this moment to the Saturday Evening Post. Quote The round that won the fight for me, and the one that was most misunderstood by ringsiders was the ninth. For two minutes, stepping up the speed of my fainting, I found it possible to punish Lewis with long rights to the face. He landed two head punches that backed me against the ropes on the south side of the garden ring. This time, instead of going for my body, he decided to level straight for my head, but I fell into a rhythm with his lefts and rights. I rolled with every punch. Because I rolled with punches, it may have looked as if my head were rocking under the drive of his gloves. Meanwhile, though I fired every time, I straightened up and caught Lewis moving into my punches. I could have ducked out or sidestepped if I wanted to, but my fists were doing the real damage. The defending champion acknowledged that by backing away. The movies verify what I say. Lewis knew that he wasn't going to nail me that night." End quote. However, Lewis is far from out of the fight. The night ends with him stopping the challenger from going back to his familiar backpedalling and the bell rings as the two find themselves in yet another hard stand-down of heavy punching. Round ten sees the champion leave his stool, anxious to at least snatch a points victory away from this wily hoofer. He doggedly hunts his quarry, looking for an opening. However, Walcock has decided he said enough in the trenches for now. If Lewis is set to pursue, then Jersey Joe is going to be one nasty gingerbread man. Frustrating the brown bomber, the confusing and complex defences are back into play. Then a stinging long left hook catches him on the chin and sends a shudder through Lewis's legs. It's a precarious bridge of fire, but Lewis is happy to run it. A quick-fire exchange of rights ends with the champion sending his opponent into the corner to land those carefully planned body shots. But Walcock is out quickly, this is not the time to attempt a repeat of the previous round. He hot his way around the ring with Lewis following with jabs. Sensing he was ahead on points, Jersey Joe decides to minimize his engagements, as tempting as they are. A familiar and frustrating pattern is set up for the champion. Walcock will restart the dance, using his walkaway, sidestep, shoulder feints and lots of backpedaling to confuse his opponent. Then here and there, he will let fly with a heavy punch that often hits its mark. Such almost humiliating moments do draw fire from Lewis and a brief back and forth ensues before Walcott will be out of range again. The champion is back to chasing in round 11. Building on the previous stanza's momentum, he keeps to the body shot plan. If he can tear away at this region, there is a chance of ending this dance or slowing it down enough. Hard lefts find their way to the challenger's midsection, followed by jabs to his head. Jersey Joe hits back with a fast jab and the two begin trading hooks followed by hard right straights. They then go back to the body before Lewis sends Jersey Joe reeling with a left hook jab and an overhand right. All land on target and shake the challenger. Dan Florio's words fly from Walcott's corner. Head down! Jersey Joe digs in.
2: in Rolling with
1: the shots and comes back with his own overhand right ahead of the bell. Round 12 and Joe Lewis is not a happy champion. Although he isn't above making barbed remarks about other fighters in his memoirs, his public persona is that of a humble man and it's fair to say he's rougher on himself than anyone else. Tonight, he wearily faces off against this dancing menace. Golden left eye is now joined by damage to his lips and the redness of his face is testament to the number of stinging shots he's failed to avoid. The frustrating, swatting, upward-angled right hook he hits Walcott with appears to be full of venom. However, when Jersey Joe, wound up in his own rhythmic flow, hits him with a backhand, (coughs) Lewis takes the shot and willingly taps the outstretched gloves proffered to him in apology. Lewis isn't happy with his performance up to this point. He cannot figure out his opponent's style and he's underestimated the man's toughness. This round, he will be mainly in pursuit when he does land lefts to his opponent's body and rights to his head, he will be repaid with jabs to his swollen eye. Woolcock deftly sidesteps Lewis's punches and peppers him with more jabs. Jersey Joe's evasive techniques stall the action for the most part, but he does get in with two lefts and a right to the champion's face and later a left-right for the champion reminds him he's still in a fight with a stiff left of the head. As Lewis sits on his stool, it's time to get back to business. He can beat this man. The bleeding wounds on Walcock's face are proof that he isn't the evasive genius his showboating seems to portray. Cast as the stalker, knowing his early baiting tactics won't work, Joe Lewis takes a deep breath and restates his claim to the ring he has owned for so long. As if falling into line, Jersey Joe backs off. That's not before he opens around with a grazing right hand that bloodies Lewis's nose. However, he figures the fight is in the bag if he can continue the dance. For the most part, he sticks to it and keeps the action at the edge of range. His left does most of the talking with an occasional beat from his right. However, when Lewis catches him on a retreat with two jabs, he has to fire back with a well-placed right and two lefts. It's the melee Joe Lewis is looking for and the dancer is pulled into matching right hooks. The champion lands the left hook to Walcott's jaw. It's enough to pause the dance. Jersey Joe comes back with a haymaker that completely misses Lewis and he falls to the canvas. Jumping back to his feet, the two slug it out for the remaining seconds of the round. Joe Lewis might have resigned himself to not getting a knockout, but Dan Florio wasn't so convinced. He felt Jersey Joe was ahead on points but feared the Brown Bombers' legendary finishing abilities. Stay away, he emphatically tells his man. The dance had to resume. There was little doubting how much Lewis was forcing the fight now. Joe, for the most part, sticks to the plan, although Lewis gets him onto the ropes and delivers some body shots. But he escapes out of range. Walcox seems to do just enough to show he is still willing to fight by firing off his jab and even getting into a few hard, if brief, exchanges. At one point, he ducks three of Lewis's punches in a row, partially blocks a fourth to counter with his own stunning check hook. It sends the champion back, but the moment is short. The round is Lewis's, as his now noticeably exhausted frame continues to pursue his fleeing rival. Florio is happy with the work being done. Walcott needs to stall. He's entertained and shocked the crowds. Now he's going to make them boo with his dancing. Joe Lewis is at his most dangerous. Even a slim opportunity for a toe-to-toe duel could spell disaster. It doesn't mean he can't give the champion a quick bloody nose, but from now on, Jersey Joe is going to dance, and dance to jeers from an entitled audience and the ticking clock inside his head. Lewis pursues and he misses. Jersey Joe shuffles, feints, backpedals and cakewalks. Just ahead of the final bell, he hits the ropes after taking a jab from Lewis but bounces (coughs) keenly back into the fray. The bell sounds. It's over. Walcott returns to his corner, only to be smothered by his manager Felix Picchio, his sponsor, the cafe owner Joe Webster, and Dan Florio as the ring is flooded by people. Their beliefs and faith feel vindicated, rising from extreme poverty, hamstrung by racial prejudice and the Great Depression. This half-starved journeyman has claimed his place in boxing history. The moment has arrived. All the heartache, the setbacks and hard work have been worth it. Jersey Joe Walcott has outboxed Joe Lewis, even sent him to the canvas twice and given Madison Square Garden the show of a lifetime. Joe Lewis returns to his corner in total disgust. He didn't need to hear the decision. He wanted to get to his locker room for reasons that would later be disputed. I felt like a piece of shit, he would later confess. His corner stops him from leaving the ring as he tries to duck under the ropes. He would have to listen to the decision or risk being disqualified. He puts his robe on and waits. It comes soon enough. Harry Bellow reads the referee and judge's scorecards. Quote. Judge Frank Forbes scores six rounds for Walcott, one round even, eight rounds for Lewis. End quote. Boos echo across the garden. Walcott's corner men try to calm them down with downward hand gestures, confident Jersey Joe will get the referee and other judges' vote. Legendary referee Ruby Goldstein doesn't disappoint. Quote. Referee Ruby Goldstein scores seven rounds for Walcott, two rounds even, six rounds for Lewis. End quote. A deafening cheer erupts from the audience. It's now down to the final scorecard. Quote. Judge Martin Monroe, Monroe, the announcer corrects himself, scores nine rounds for Lewis, six rounds for Walcott. End quote. Walcott's Corner could be seen in the centre of the ring displaying their horror in exaggerated gestures. Florio buries his face in his hands. Joe Lewis retains the World Heavyweight Championship. He walks over to Walcott's Corner, grasping Jersey Joe's hand in both of his huge mitts. Lewis looks him in the eye. I'm sorry, Joe, he says before making his way back to the locker room. Jersey Joe is a man used to cruel disappointment. But three Decembers ago, one man did not disappoint him. Felix Becicchio has been at his side ever since, helping him support his family and to fulfil his aspirations. He isn't going to stop now. The cake walker deserves better. That mocking dance had confused many for nearly a hundred years. Tonight it had entertained an audience and flummoxed a champion, but winning the belt would be no piece of cake. The thunderous booing coming from a crowd of over 18,000 was not the response they expected at the end of the performance. Dan Florio looks out at Madison Square Garden and grips Jersey Joe's arm. As he lifts it into the air, the booing turns into a huge cheer that reaches the ceiling. Next episode, as Jersey Joe Walcock meets Joe Lewis for their rematch, a new threat emerges with his hungry eyes set on the title belt.
2: Ezra Charles was a madman who would fight in the pocket in a way that has rarely been duplicated. His ability to move tightly around the circumference of his opponent, avoiding punches by millimetres... And throwing counter power punches sets him apart into the pantheon of all time greats in the sport of boxing. The match between himself and Walcott is one of the greatest styles make fights matchups of all time. One man, Walcott, a tap dancer, a jazz musician changing angles in an unorthodox way and strange lines in relation to his opponent and the other man leaping in like a tiger and attacking in close, smothering, throwing power shots on angles and shifting. It's such a fantastic matchup for the ages. These two styles coming together in an era of all-time greats.
1: Don't miss Cakewalker, Part 2, Rise of the Cincinnati Cobra. My other books, Rong Fu and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Rong Fu is a prequel to my Bullshit Tzu and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubkimura.com. The details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Altail, or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five star rating and a review, I would be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there as well as filming of my various lessons so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.